Good morning, College Park. Hope that you are uh, doing well today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1. And as you're turning there, I just have two uh, quick announcements before we uh, dive in today. Uh, just a reminder for those of you who are looking for that next step uh, to become a member. Uh, we have our membership class that's starting up uh, next Sunday. It's a four-week class and, uh, and so just want to strongly encourage those of you who want to make that step to make sure that you sign up and, uh, and get ready for, uh, for next Sunday. The second announcement is that following the service, we have uh, a really important members meeting. Uh, it's more of an informational meeting about the direction uh, of our campus, uh, as well as a quick update on uh, the land and the building and, uh, and kind of where we're going the next uh, couple years uh, of our campus. So just want to encourage you just to, just to stay after uh, our, our service today. And then after that members meeting, we'll have uh, our pitch-in uh, right next door in the cafeteria. So if you're hungry, uh, please stay. We'd love to fellowship uh, with you as well. So let me uh, read this. Uh, we're just looking at the first uh, two verses together today, and then I'll pray and we will uh, dive in. So this is the word of the Lord reads this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise for today. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God who is sovereign. You are a God who, who loves your children. And Lord, we confess our great and desperate need of you today, Lord, we need your help to adequately understand and apply your word today. And so, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you give us an open mind, open eyes. Lord, help us to hear your spirit today. We pray, Lord, that the, the name of Jesus will be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a new sermon series called This Exiled Life, where we'll preach through the book of 1 Peter uh, verse by verse. And all year long, we've been preparing for this sermon series. If you remember in the first part of the year, we had uh, a sermon series on lamentations, uh, where we looked at what it means to lament. And we looked at what do we as Christians do with our sorrows and with our pain. We then uh, looked at a series on heaven and looked at where our true citizenship lies. And then we did a sermon series on Daniel and looked at an example of someone living in exile. And then last week, of course, we finished up a sermon series on what is the Bible. And we looked at how the Bible is true, the Bible is relevant, the Bible is reliable, and the Bible is sufficient. And if you've noticed that each series has been designed to help us better understand how to engage with the culture around us, and it's really meant to set up this series today. So we're really, really excited to finally be in 1 Peter, where we'll finally look at what does it mean to practically live as an exile. And so today we'll just be looking at the first two verses. And the message today is titled, Welcome to the Exile. Now, when you think about that word, 
exile, what comes to your mind today? That perhaps you think of foreigner or refugee, someone that doesn't have a permanent residence. Or perhaps when you think about exile, you think about a biblical category that was just meant for people living in the Bible times, and it may not relate to us today. Or maybe when you think about the word exile, you think, that's, that's who I am as a Christian, and yet I don't really know what that means to live out practically or what it exactly entails. Well, the aim of this sermon series is to help answer what it means to live as a spiritual exile in this world. That more specifically, through First Peter, my hope is that we'll be able to discern how it is to live in this world, but not be of this world. To figure out how to engage with this world, but with a heavenly mindset, knowing that this world is not our home. Now, I don't know what it's like to live as a refugee or to live as a permanent foreigner, but the closest thing to it that I've experienced was what I experienced last week in Southeast Asia. I was on a mission vision trip, and being in a different culture uh, gave me this mindset of what an exile typically has as they live their entire lives in a culture that is not really their own. Now, in Southeast Asia, not only was the food different and the clothing different and the language different, but even the values were different. Just give you a quick example of that. One of the highlights of the trip and uh, one of the most terrifying moments of the trip was riding an elephant. And we had this opportunity of riding this elephant. I got paired off with Pastor Dale Shaw. And, uh, and if you know Dale, he's, um, he's kind of a risk taker. And uh, it was a really, really fun part of the trip, but, but absolutely terrifying because what we found out after, uh, after the, the, the trip on the, the elephant is that we exceeded the, the amount of weight on this one elephant. And, uh, and so what happened was the seat that we were on, on top of this elephant, kept swaying back and forth. And so it was incredibly terrifying because we didn't know if we are just going to fall off the elephant or, or not. And the person that was kind of driving the elephant, that was riding the elephant, um, he was a native there, and he kept looking back at us, yelling things in his own language. And we have no, no idea what he is saying, and we're just kind of freaking out, not knowing if we're going to actually fall off on this elephant. And we were just in a completely different culture. Like, this culture was not our own. And I'll never forget the, the look on the driver's face as he kept constantly looking back at us, saying things in his own language. And I couldn't understand what he was saying but the look on his face was screaming, you don't belong here. That this, this isn't your home. You don't, you don't fit in. And, and that feeling of, of not quite fitting in, of understanding that this, this really isn't my home, is the feeling and the mindset of a spiritual exile. That the trajectory of our culture, I would argue, is leading us in a certain direction where that feeling will be normative for those who claim the name of Jesus. So perhaps the term exile for you is, is no longer just some theological category, some abstract thing that defines your identity, but maybe for you it's becoming something more experiential. And maybe for you you're, you're be becoming treated differently from your friend group, that you're becoming more isolated because you're a follower of Jesus. Or maybe things at work have 
begun changing. Maybe the way that your boss treats you or coworkers treat you are now different because you claim the name of Jesus. Or maybe people within your own family or in your own neighborhood think less of you because you're a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you've been wrestling with how to think about culture, how to think about the political arena as people whose citizenship lies in heaven and yet still wanting to engage biblically. So maybe we are transitioning from this just being a theological category to something that we're experiencing more and more. Well, my hope is that this sermon series will shed light on those issues. In fact, before we jump into our our two verses this morning, I just want to share five reasons why we're in this series, five reasons why we're in this book at this time. Number one, First, I want us to see that the shifting cultural reality around us is an opportunity to be embraced and not a trend to be feared. That as we experience more and more kind of the uncoupling of Christianity from American culture, I don't want our first step to be fear. I want our first step to be boldness and confidence because our King Jesus is still on the throne. Number two, Second, I want to remind us of who we really are and what our true calling actually is. And the reason for that is because it's so easy to forget that, especially during the election this fall. Number three, the third reason that we're in this letter during this time is so that we won't be surprised when we experience the weirdness and the strangeness of Christianity. I don't want us to be taken aback when we start sharing the gospel more and more with people, and the response is not only rejection of the message, but it's the rejection of you because it's weird. And I don't want us to be surprised by that because the message of the gospel is not only offensive, but if you take a step back, it's, it's quite strange. And so I don't want us to be taken aback by that. Number four I'm hoping that this series will further, further drive us back to the Bible and that we would see just how relevant this book actually is. That as we understand more and more what it means to be a spiritual exile, my prayer and my hope is that we would love this book in ways that we have never loved this book before. And I hope that we read the Bible more and more as we understand our true identity as a spiritual exile in this world. Fifth and last is that I want this series to help us to be mobilized towards godliness. That I want us to have a sense of urgency for each and every one of us to grow in our personal holiness And yet not only that, but to see as we gather together as the people of God that there's something unique and something special when we gather together as the people of God. And then after we gather, when we scatter all throughout the week, that we are lights in a dark, dark place. Therefore, we need to grow in our personal holiness. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be in this letter. I'm excited to look at this book and see what we can learn from First Peter. And so before we dive into these first two verses, I want to look at the, at the context here, to look at the background. Now that we have a framework for why we're in this letter, let me point out 
a few things for us to know. Number one, I just want you to know that in this introduction, Peter does not just give a traditional greeting. That what Peter does is he packs full this letter, this introduction with theology. And he actually introduces to us some key themes that we'll see throughout the entire letter. But let me point out for you the the author of the letter. Now, the widespread understanding of who wrote this letter is Peter. And Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. If you remember, he's the one that briefly walked on water. He was the impulsive disciple. He was quick to speak, quick to act. But he was kind of part of the inner core of disciples along with James and John. The author is the apostle Peter, and he brings the apostolic authority of Jesus Christ. Now notice who the recipients are in verse 1, that Peter writes to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that the recipients of this letter are Christians, some Jewish, mostly Gentile, who have been scattered, which is the meaning of the word dispersion. Now, this word dispersion would have resonated mainly with the Jewish Christians because it would have reminded them of the people of God in the Old Testament who are often scattered from their homeland. Now, let me just point out this map for you that these Christians have been scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is a vast area of about 129,000 square miles. So just by comparison, the state of California covers about 159,000 square miles. So this would be modern-day Turkey, for those of you who just love maps. So Peter is writing to Christians who have been scattered. Now, Peter not only describes where these people are, but he also describes who they are. Now, notice in verse 1 the word that Peter describes in describing who they are. He uses the word exiles. Now, what an interesting word choice by Peter. This is not a traditional name that you would call the people that you're writing to, especially in the New Testament, that when you look throughout the New Testament, a lot of the authors will use beloved or they'll use saints. But Peter here uses exiles. Now, why does Peter use that word? Well, the word exiles or strangers introduces a very important theme throughout this letter that Peter uses the word to describe the believer's relationship to the world, that Christians are in this world, but they're not of it, that they're somewhat out of place, they're not fully fitting in, and as a a result, the world around them treats them as such, that as God's people, we are pilgrims, we are sojourners, we're aliens, we're strangers in the world, that the church is God's suffering people, having no place of rest in this world. And this term throughout the New Testament is only used three times. It's used in our passage this morning. It's used in chapter 2, verse 11. And it's also used in Hebrews 11, verse 13. Let me read this to see how the author of Hebrews uses this word. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, let me also point out for us that believers are exiles not because they've been displaced from their physical homeland, that many people in the Greco-Roman world no longer lived in their place of origin, but believers are spiritual exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange, that we have a temporary residence in this world on our way to our ultimate home in a fully realized kingdom of God. Now, a couple of minutes ago, I mentioned being on a mission trip. And for those of you who have been on a mission trip, you know that they can be fairly intense. And some people, if you've noticed this, sometimes people develop kind of a, a mindset or a mantra when they're on a mission trip just to get through the week or two weeks that they're in a different country. And that mantra goes something like this. They say to themselves, okay, I'm only here for a short time, and then I'm going to go back home. And so until I go back home, I'm going to go all out for the gospel, I'm going to serve, I'm going to give up of myself for this period of time, and then I'll be coming home. Now that mindset or that mantra on a mission trip is the mindset that Peter is getting at for a spiritual exile. And it's not just for a week or two, it's for their entire life that a spiritual exile says that I'm only here on this earth for a short period of time, and then I'm going home to heaven. And until I do, I'm going to go all out for the gospel. I'm going to give up of myself. I'm going to serve. I'm going to be a light in this world. See, being a spiritual exile is who we actually are. And the question that we'll be confronted with throughout this entire series is, do you think about yourself in that way? And therefore, do you live like that, like a spiritual exile? That when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you first think that I'm a Christian who just so happens to be living in America, or do you think I'm an American who just so happens to be a Christian? And though there are many advantages and blessings of living in this country, one of the difficulties can be having a misplaced identity as a follower of Jesus. That we can lose sight of the fact that we don't actually belong here. That we're strangers here. That we're aliens. That we can so easily fall into this mindset of, of just wanting to fit in here of just wanting to belong, just, just wanting to, to blend in with the culture around us, that we want to be Christian, but, but we still want to be accepted by culture. We, we don't always want to be marginalized or treated differently. And I think what we're seeing right before our very eyes is the separation between Christianity and the American culture, and it's making some of us a little uncomfortable that we're having difficulty navigating how do we live in this world, in this country that has predominantly been accepting of Christianity and now is not so much anymore. And yet I want to encourage us this morning that there is, there is something inherently Christian 
about looking around in the world and saying, I don't quite belong here, that I don't quite fully fit in, that my soul is not fully satisfied in this culture. I think C.S. Lewis puts it so well when, when he said this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. That a baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. That if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And yet the question is, is that how is that impacting how we're living now in the present? That if we really have been made for another world, how does that impact how we live day in and day out in the culture that we live? Because if we're really honest, sometimes we do feel at home here. We don't always feel like strangers and aliens here in America. And the challenge is that sometimes we feel so much at home here that it starts to impact how we practice and live out our faith or how we spend our money or how we use our time or our energy or our outlook and our perspective on life. That we can almost be more influenced by the culture rather than the Bible. And honestly, that's one of the challenges with this sermon series is that when we start talking about being an alien and being a stranger, we have a theological understanding of that, but not always experientially do we understand that. And yet that won't always be the true in America here. But Peter did not need to convince his audience that they were aliens and exiles. They knew it and they experienced it. We, on the other hand, need to be reminded of it. We need to be shown it. And First Peter will help us do that. So the purpose of the letter that Peter writes this, we see this explicitly in chapter 5, uh, verse 12. That Peter says that I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That Peter wants his readers to know and experience the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. That's the purpose of this letter. And the reason for this is because of the very real temptation that they were faced with to fall away from God and not stand firm because of the trials and suffering that they were experiencing. That they were being slandered and maligned. That their social status and their family relationships and perhaps even their employment was being threatened. They were tempted to walk away from the faith, and so Peter writes to them to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God. In fact, Peter's aim in this letter is to answer the question, how are we to live in this passing world that's not our home? Peter wants them to know that being an exile, being a stranger in this world has implications not to disengage from society, but to engage with the culture around us with a heavenly mindset and identity. That having this displaced mindset has an impact on how and what we believe. That's something that we'll see all throughout this letter is that Peter will help connect the dots for us in all kinds of areas of our lives. 
that Peter will help us see that being an alien here impacts our personal holiness, that being an alien impacts our marriages, being an alien impacts how we suffer and how we view authority and how we understand the nature of the church. This letter is incredibly practical. And so as we look to the rest of our passage this morning, we're just looking at these two verses But Peter wastes no time in trying to encourage the believers that he's writing to. In fact, for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to point out for us three truths that every Christian who's in exile needs to know. That Peter just gets right after and immediately begins to encourage them with three powerful truths that every exiled Christian needs to know. And so here's number one. Every exiled Christian is chosen, is chosen. This first truth comes from verse 1, that after Peter has introduced himself, he says this. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, we've already looked at the meaning of the word exile, but the word translated elect simply means chosen, And so these two words, elect exiles, are two words that describe both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of our identity as Christians. That on one hand, we are chosen by God, speaking to the vertical dimension, but at the same time, we are foreigners as it relates to the world around us, speaking to the horizontal dimension of our identity. But Peter uses this word chosen to describe these exiled Christians because they needed to be reminded of it. And I think we do too as well. That we need to remember that even though the world and the culture and society around us might reject us, that they might uh, treat us as though that we're less and we're put off by the strangeness of our Christianity, we need to know that we have been chosen by God, that we are accepted by God. That being chosen and elected is our fundamental identity, not being rejected by the world. That God's election or God's choosing of his people is according to his foreknowledge, according to verse 2a. I'll point out that some have argued that election is based on God's foreknowledge in the sense that God looked down the corridors of time and Saul, who would freely choose to believe, and then he chose them. And so this position assumes that foreknowledge simply means to know in advance. And that's not my personal position on foreknowledge, because all throughout the Bible, we see knowledge used in the sense of personal intimacy. I'll just give you one example here in Amos 3.2, where God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does this mean? That that God was ignorant of all the other families and nations of the world outside of Israel? Well, no. But the type of knowing that, that God is referring to here when he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, is a knowing that refers to setting his love and his affection upon them. It's the type of knowing that says, your mind, that God's foreknowledge is linked to his foreloving. See, what Peter has in mind is not simply basic knowledge or information that God has, but the New Testament understanding of God's foreknowledge 
of his people indicates that God did not simply observe them or have information about them at some prior time in history, but instead God chose them according to or consistent with his plan and purpose long before God formed a people to be his own. Now, this is important to know because Christians are not Christians merely by their own decision, but it's by the initiative of God who called us. That we're not in exile by our own choice. We're in exile because God chose it, because God chose us. And Peter explains to his readers that God's divine initiative has operated in their lives even before they were aware of it. Now, it's always difficult to provide an illustration when you're talking about election and foreknowledge. So this is going to fall short to some degree, but it might be helpful that the first time I met my wife, Lindsay, was the first weekend of our freshman year in college. Now, we were at this big freshman party in this big soccer field, and I went to this party with some of my guy friends, and at this party that night, I met dozens of people. Okay, I gathered all kinds of knowledge and information about tons of people that night, and yet I looked across the soccer field, and I saw Lindsay, who was then Lindsay Neal, and I said to my guy friends, I'm going to go talk to her. And so I went up to her, I introduced myself, made some, some small talk, probably dropped some mad lines, and, uh, and just had a really good conversation, went back to my friends, and I told my guy friends, I said, you see that girl over there? See that? See that? That's Lindsay Neal. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to, I'm going to date her. Okay? Now, this illustration completely breaks down if you go and ask her her side of the story, because she doesn't even remember meeting me that night. <laughs> so some of those lines may not have really worked. But we ended up dating and got engaged. Obviously, we're married. But even though, here's my point, even though I had knowledge and awareness and information about dozens of girls that I met that night, I had a particular kind of knowledge of Lindsay Neal, a type of knowledge that then led me to pursue her, that led me to woo her, that then led us to have a relationship together. Now, in a similar way, God has knowledge of everyone. Okay? God, God is not ignorant of anything in this world, yet for those that he chooses to become his people, he has a particular kind of knowledge, a foreknowledge, whereby he sets his initiating love and an affection upon and draws into a relationship with himself. The only difference is that he does this before the foundations of the world. Now think about that for a moment. This this doctrine, this understanding is a huge encouragement. This is a warm blanket to our souls. That if you're in Christ today, what this means is before the foundations of the world, God saw you, God knew you, and God set his affection upon you and has been wooing you to himself ever since. And so even for those of you who are here today and you're not a Christian You'd say you're not a follower of Jesus. There's a reason why you're in this room on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping in. 
that I would argue that God is wooing you to himself and I would encourage you to surrender your life to King Jesus and put your faith and trust upon him. But look, this, this understanding that you have been chosen is an incredible encouragement that Peter is using to remind the believers here that your fundamental identity is not being rejected by the world, but you have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world, that that is what defines you. That as the world is screaming at you, you don't belong here. God says, I have chosen you. You're part of my family. This is the foundation of the hope and encouragement that Peter intends to bring throughout this letter, that he's reminding the people of God of his great love for them. So just a reminder for us that this this doctrine of election and foreknowledge, it's not something that we wave in front of those who don't yet know God, but it should be used to bring comfort for those who are in the faith that exiled Christians are chosen. And yet not only that, but exiled Christians, number two here, they are sanctified. They are sanctified. So not only does he encourage them, reminding them that they've been chosen, but also that they have been sanctified. Look at verse two with me. Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now as elect sojourners, believers are also set apart or sanctified by the Spirit, that our conversion is the result of the Spirit's work. Our conversion means that we've obeyed God in the gospel, that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that our sins have been forgiven. But let me point out here, notice the Trinitarian work of God in our passage, that as Peter is looking to encourage these believers that he's pulling on every member of the Godhead, that the Father elects, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. Man, what, what an encouragement. But let me point out here that the term sanctification, this often refers to the progressive growth of holiness in the lives of Christians. That you can see that specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. That if coming to faith in Christ is what we call justification, that's a moment in time, then the pursuit of becoming and looking more and more like Jesus is what we call sanctification. However, in this context, the focus of sanctification is on conversion, that it's on us coming to Christ, us belonging to Jesus that this word sanctification is referring to being set apart, being consecrated away from the world. Now what Peter is showing us is that the foreknowing work of God and the sanctifying action of the Spirit is for something, that it has a purpose that's driving it, which is obedience to Christ in the gospel that we don't belong to this world, and so we shouldn't look like the world, that we as sanctified, set-apart believers, we have different priorities, we have different values, we have different convictions, a different perspective than the world, that we have been sanctified and set apart. Now, in this passage here, Peter is reminding them of the purpose by which they have been called, 
It's for obedience to Jesus. It's to live and look like Jesus in a dark world, even as an exile. That because Jesus shed his blood on the cross in our place, we therefore pledge our allegiance to him and live for Jesus, that that is our purpose in this life. Now, this would have been incredibly encouraging for Peter's audience. This is encouraging for me to hear that that you have been called, that you have been sanctified for a purpose, namely for the obedience to Jesus to look and live like Jesus, which means that being an exile here in America does not mean that we withdraw from society or culture. It does not mean that we wall ourselves off from engagement and culture, but that we engage with culture with a chosen and a sanctified identity and with a reality that this place is not our home. I don't know if you've noticed this, but but this tends to happen in our own lives, that our God-given purpose to live a godly and a faithful life to Jesus sometimes gets hijacked by things in this temporary world. That our purpose to living faithfully to Jesus, to living out the gospel, and and being a light to a dark world, sometimes gets misplaced, and we start to live for the things in this world. We begin starting to build our own kingdoms. We start to advance our own selves. There's a reason why so many Christians lay awake at night wondering, what is the purpose in life? There's a reason why so many Christians are wondering, why am I really on the earth? And I really think it's because that a lot of Christians have forsaken living with this intentional purpose as an exile in this world, living a godly and a faithful life, and their purpose from God has been hijacked by the purposes and priorities and pleasures of this world, and it's turning them into slaves. So many Christians might have the label of Christian, and yet they're not truly living as an exile in this world. And yet this passage reminds us, it it causes us to stop and reflect who we are and what our calling and purpose actually is. That as we experientially know more and more what an exile feels in this world, we are reminded of our purpose of living like Jesus. That as Christianity becomes more and more strange to the world and we get rejected more and more, it's going to be harder to hide as a Christian. It's going to be harder to hide what our true purpose is in this world. And so we need to keep in mind that we've been sanctified for a specific purpose, namely for the obedience of Jesus to be a light in this world. That our identity as exiles has implications even at work when you're faced with ethical dilemmas or how we parent little exiles and little aliens for the glory of Jesus or how you interact with your friends or coworkers. That that our identity as an exile has a certain set apartness about us and that we're different because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so the father elects, and this is played out as 
the Spirit draws and as the Spirit sanctifies and as the Son's blood cleanses and saves. The beautiful work of the Trinity, as Peter reminds us, that exiles are here on this earth, but we're here with a hope and with a specific purpose that we can find encouragement in. So not only are we chosen, not only are we sanctified, but number three here is that exiled Christians are sufficiently supplied, sufficiently supplied. The opening of this letter closes with Peter declaring something that every Christian in exile needs, and that's grace and peace. That he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What Peter is doing is he's showing how every exile Christian is sufficiently supplied in order to live out our identity as chosen exiles. That through the multiplication of the grace and peace of Jesus Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That we have everything we need to live this faithful calling of being a light to a dark world. And are you in need of this this morning? Are you in need of grace and peace? Are you, are you finding it difficult to live as an exile in this world? That maybe the environment that you're in at work or maybe within your own family or friend group, that being a Christian is now costing you something? That maybe you're trying to make sense of, of how to suffer, how to go through trials as an exile? Are you in need of grace and peace this morning? And not just a little bit, but grace and peace that's actually multiplied because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross? That Peter wants us to know that, that as believers in Christ, we have peace with God and we have grace made available. All we have to do is come. All we have to do is come and rest before Jesus. Declare our great need of his grace and of his peace and rest at the feet of Jesus and ask him to use us for the glory of his name. And so Peter ends his introduction showing believers that even though we feel rejected and alone and perhaps even persecuted down the road, he wants to remind us that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world And through the Spirit's work, we have been set apart by the blood of Jesus for obedience. That we have not been left alone. We have not been forgotten to navigate this difficult world, but that his grace and his peace will be multiplied to us, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. And if you look around the room, we have friends to help us, to encourage us as we're on this journey, as we're on this pilgrimage to make sense of what it means to be an exile in this world. So let's pray together. Before I close this in prayer, I just want to give you about 30 seconds just to turn to God who has the ultimate supply of grace and peace and just give you 30 seconds and I just want you to finish this sentence to God. Just say, God, I need your grace and peace for blank. God, I need your grace and peace for blank. Just finish that sentence and just go to the Lord here for a couple seconds.
God, we do give you praise that you are the God who has unlimited resources of grace and peace. Lord, we thank you that when we come to you, you never get tired of us, that you are never overwhelmed by our own burdens. And Lord, as we begin the study of this amazing letter of what it means to be an exile in this world, God, we pray for your grace and your peace, God, to guide us, God, help us to apply what we learn from your word. And Lord, we do just stop and we give you praise for, for your election, for your foreknowledge, for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' blood that cleanses us. Lord, I pray as we leave this place today, as we are scattered throughout this community, that we would be a light in this world, that people are in desperate need of hope. God, help us to live with boldness and courage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.